The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, it's a Timothy Zahn extravaganza as we discuss the Icarus plot, cut deals on Zahn's ebook backlist, and continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Cobra. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. This week, we bring you Josh Hayes' discussion with Timothy Zahn about his latest novel, The Icarus Plot. Many of our listeners will know Zahn from his Cobra series of military science fiction novels, his collaborations with David Weber in the Honorverse, and of course, as the creator of the Star Wars character, Admiral Thrawn. The Icarus plot has all the hallmarks of a Zahn novel that readers have come to love. It's a caper book that will keep you turning the pages with likable heroes and fast pacing. But first, the news. To celebrate the release of the Icarus plot, we're offering discounts on all of Timothy Zahn's ebook backlist. For the month of July, save $1 on Black Collar, Judas Solution, and all of the Cobra novels. The sale ends July 31st, and this discount is good wherever Bane ebooks are sold. Now, let's listen to Josh Hayes and Timothy Zahn discussing the Icarus plot. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Josh Hayes. Welcome to the interview portion of the Bain Free Radio Hour. Uh, this week, I have the honor and privilege of talking with Timothy Zahn, the author of the upcoming Icarus Plot, um, which is it's kind of a, a second book in a series, but also they can be read out of order or they're more uh, connected tangentially than anything. And uh, um, you can read book two and then go back and read book one, or you can read them in order. And I think any any way you read them, you'll probably pick different things out. I, I, I got a lot of cool Easter eggs by reading them in order through the second book that I was like, aha, this is neat. Um, and so I'm really excited to talk to uh, Timothy today. And thank you for uh, taking the time out to, to hang out with us this morning. No problem. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so the Icarus plot is the, the second book, like I mentioned, and uh, the first book, The Icarus Hunt, uh, focuses on uh, Jordan McKay. Uh, um, wow, I was just gonna Mikhail. I was gonna say Mikhail, and I was like, no, Mikhail. it's, it's yeah. Mikhail. Um, and his crew. It's kind of a ragtag crew, um, as a whole bunch of other people are 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 hunting them down. And um, uh, we learn some things about them through that book. And then we get to this book, and this book focuses on uh, Gregory Rourke and Celine and um not so much as a big crew this time they're they're a, an operating pair um but then as the the story progresses you know we add characters into the mix um but i wanted to to start out our conversation just kind of talking about you know um the the general inspiration that you had for the series as a whole and then kind of like what you enjoy doing about the series because it's kind of um it's similar in some aspects to what you what you what you write, but it's it's more um, uh, 
niche in that. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's more of a what's going to happen more than a than a an action packed like you know uh, battles and all this stuff. It's it's very kind of hmm uh, interesting mental challenge to figure out what's going on. Yeah, more of a, a mystery uh, thriller is probably not the right word, but a mystery puzzle box. Um, who is doing what? Who is what size? Everybody on? Um, what's going on? All that sort of thing that hopefully will become very clear by the end, right? Uh, with a few surprises along the way. Yeah. Uh, so. You know, we talked that that the the two protagonists in in the books are different. What was your thought process there? And then um, when you went to create the the new character of Gregory, what were you what were you wanting to do that would make this book stand out differently than the first book? But Jordan's a really interesting character, um, and you learn a lot about him as you go through the book. And same thing here with Jordan too. By the way, I love the um, my father used to say bits through the entire book. I, I kept waiting for the penny to drop and like his dad would come out and say, I never said that. I kept waiting for that to happen. Uh, um, uh, so what, what was your inspiration for, for Gregory? And then also Celine too, because Celine is really interesting. When I first, I've been looking for a new plot for this universe for about 20 years and finally got one. Uh, pitched the proposal to my agent, and he said that 20 years later, it's going to be hard for people to jump back into this saga. But he suggested others of his clients with this uh, same situation would set it in the same universe, but with new protagonists. So I decided to go that route. Uh, Gregory was going to be, uh, he's a, used to be a bounty hunter, so he's got those skills. But after a, a bad accident that you read about in the book, uh, he and his and Celine became Crockett's instead. Uh, the trailblazers, they go. I love that term. Uh, search. Yeah, they search um, unknown or un, unexplored planets, uh, send bioprobes in to see what kind of uh, little bit of biology, whether it's worth uh, someone buying the planet and uh, developing it. So uh, they've gone to with this much simpler, much safer sort of uh, endeavor. Uh, Celine was a, I wanted her to just, the, the unique ability, the Cadolian people have this incredible sense of smell, uh, can pick out somebody's scent after they've touched something days ago, and thought that would be an, a unique sort of thing, and also drive the plot because that ability is what uh, the other people in the book uh, need. And so this is why they hire them. Only things are not quite what they seem, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then fold in some of the original characters from the book where it made sense to do that. And um, just, just went from there. Uh, it just as a side note, uh, my son did the uh, copy editing of this. And when he had finished reading, he said to me that uh, he really wanted to meet uh, Gregory's dad someday. <laughs> <laughs> I had not ever thought of having 
you know, as my father used to say, is kind of one of his catchphrases. It's similar to the old Banachek, uh, old Polish proverb sort of thing, which he would then make up out of whole cloth. Right, um, exactly. And so I figure book four or five, I'm going to have to bring his dad in. Oh, for sure. I like the, I, I, I thought it was really cool that the quotes were like memorable quotes. Like you're like, okay, I know what that is, but mm-hmm. they weren't quite right. There was always something that was just a little incorrect in the from the traditional uh, quote. You know what I mean? Like he wasn't remembering yes, it exactly there. correctly. And there are a few that are just basically tongue in cheek or sarcastic or right. Uh, you know, um, there's one I think in the book I'm working on, as my father used to say, "Don't shoot first, shoot only." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um so, well, uh things of that sort. Uh you mentioned uh C- yep. Celine and and her unique abilities and um what I really enjoyed about those abilities is um you know sometimes with especially with sci-fi books but sometimes with fantasy but a lot of times with sci-fi you give aliens some really cool abilities or you give the characters some cool abilities and they're cool to watch they're cool to see happen but they don't sometimes a lot of times really affect the plot or affect what the other characters are doing around them and you know Celine and Gregory kind of get underestimated in a lot of situations where her abilities um really people don't take them like they understand what they are but they don't take them into account the way they should and i like uh the way that you use them consistently through the book and then even having um the um jerry character know that but then like he knows it but he doesn't say it and he uses it against him and uh yeah um when you're when you're going through these stories or especially with this i mean you know you have the star wars stuff you have all those things where people know about that but i think developing these new things and and adding them into the plot is that something you're you're wanting to to develop these new things to add to the story and it was that those abilities did they come before you started writing the story or did they come like just as you were developing it? Uh, pretty much. I had the idea of her being able to, to, to do this, uh, scent tracing and such. Uh, and of course that then developed, went how the plot, uh, developed, uh, in my mind. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that people can know something and not factor it into their, they're thinking, they're planning. It just it takes a while to reset your brain that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, just recently started playing upwards with people. I'm a Scrabble player, yeah. but uh, game night upwards where you can add a letter on top of another one. I know the rule, but my brain is not trained yet to look at a word and see if I add change this letter and this letter, I can make a new word. It's something that I, I know the rule, but I don't think it yet. Exactly. And I think that's a lot of what uh, what's in this book. That the, the antagonists understand what she can do, but it doesn't factor into their planning as much as it should. Right. Um, 
the one of the things that I really liked about the the first book and and enjoyed about the second book are the are the kind of uh, twists and double twists and um, you know characters uh, conning everyone is not the right thing that's happened but but everybody seems to have their own little con game that they're running on everybody else and um it's interesting after reading the first book and then kind of not when i went into the first book i really didn't know what to expect and so reading it and then having all that stuff happen i was like oh that's really cool and then going into the second book i was like oh i'm looking for it this time because i want to see if i can see it um and it was interesting sometimes i was like is that it is that and then it turns out it wasn't and then this other things that i you know you'd see um the ferrets for instance in different places and you're like i think i know what that is but then you're like i'm surely that's not the you know ixel is not the only alien that's around in the area so it's it, it was really cool to see not overdone either but just these little parts where th- the characters are seeing something and maybe they don't truly understand what they're seeing but that's as the reader you're like oh i think i know what's happening here yeah, and oh. we, you don't want to do the same plot twist with each book, uh, right? So the, this one has doesn't have that same kicker at the end, but it does have enough little twists and turns and reveals that um, it should be satisfying without again going over the same territory. Sure. Uh, is that something that you consciously wanted to do with these books just to kind of keep people on their toes? Cause it's, I think you could very easily have done just a straightforward plot, but this kind of bounces back on itself. And there's a lot of other variables that are get put into, which, which kind of kind of make it flip flop on itself a couple of times before the realization happens for the reader and also for the characters themselves. Yeah, I mean, that was the flavor of the first book of what's going on. Oh, I understand. Oh, wait, no, I guess I don't. And bring it all, tying it all together at the end. Uh, I mean, yeah, a straightforward plot. What's the fun of that? Right. So uh, (laughs) this is that that style of book. I tend to put a little bit of puzzle box into, I think, every, every book I do just because it's fun and the readers seem to enjoy it. Uh, but yeah, this is this type of Ic- Ic- the original Icarus Hunt was that kind, as you say, and I want all of the ones in the series to be that way as well. Different um, plot twist, uh, different. Uh, what is going on, and is it correct, or is it is it uh, is there another layer underneath here I need to know about? Well, and also I think it's interesting that you know, we keep kind of comparing the the two books, but from, from book one, you kind of, you experience the, if you want to call it a con, or you want to call it the, this side of the plot, you experience it one way. And then you see it a different way in book two, um, kind of from the other side. Um, and it was interesting seeing it play out the the ideas play out from different perspectives and then the understandings of like you're thinking okay it's one thing the character's thinking another thing and then you get to the end and both of you are wrong 
Um, but also yeah. the, you know, there's, there's several misinterpretations from, uh, the, uh, uh, Gregory's point of view too, throughout the whole book. There's, there's some, some yeah. things that from his perspective are true. And, um, those, you know, affect his decision-making and defect, uh, uh, other things and, and seeing those wrapped together and even kind of looking at those in the light from book one are very interesting aspects of his character. Yeah. I mean, Gregory is not nearly as adept at this sort of thing as Jordan McHell was in the first book. Right. And that, that shows he comes to, he jumps to conclusions that may or may not be right uh, acts on them. Sometimes he's right, sometimes he isn't. Uh, a lot of times he is kind of scrambling to uh, react to situations. He's good at that, but he is he is not driving things as much as uh, he would like to, certainly. Yes, like he's um, he's he's reacting, and those reactions um are not as educated or fruitful sometimes as Jordan's might've been. And I, I thought that the, the making it. So the first one was like, you know, the big chase between you know, over planets and through space and all that stuff. And this one kind of starts out like that. I mean, not, not uh, in a grandiose scale, but you kind of seeing it head in that direction. And then it, it takes another direction. And uh, I wasn't seeing that. I did not see that coming, which is good. You know, that's, that's always uh, an, uh, what you're striving for through the story. But I enjoyed the other direct. Like I enjoyed the direction that you took this book rather than just doing another kind of interstellar chase um, and, and layering yeah, I mean, on. Yeah. Yeah. The, the reason I, it took me 20 years to come up with anything more was I didn't want to do the same book again. That's kind of a waste of effort for everybody. Yeah. So I needed something that was different, and this is the one that finally popped into my head. Um, the the Nask character, um, it was an interesting uh, villain to have because in many ways he wasn't like your mustache twirling villain um but he was very uh determined and the things that he said were the words of them were extremely not extremely violent in and of the words but you could tell that the intent was behind them was vicious and malicious and he would have done it if certain things might have happened or would happen. Um, but he was also very chill <laughs> if that's the right word to use. Like he was, he was not uh, using loud intimidation like that, but he, he was very subtle. And I really enjoy that about um villains where they're they're not yelling and screaming and and you know just going you know crazy but they're very calm and collected and subtle and those i think are kind of the the scariest villains that you can read in the book when you developed his character what what was the the thought process in that 
I, he was a character in the first book. Um, mm-hmm. I, I wanted, I needed one of the path in in this one, and he was the logical person. Uh, he'll be a continuing character through the series, and yeah, he's not a he, he's a villain to the, the our protagonist, but he is firmly convinced what he is doing is the best for his own people. Right. Uh, and he's you know, from that point of view, he's got a job to do. He is going to do it, and he is a, a good manipulator and planner of his own. Uh, I, I think a lot of the time, the, the best villains and heroes are the ones who are doing things correct from what they know, but they don't have a, a, a complete picture of what's going on. Yes. And that 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 fits Nask and also um, uh, Gregory and Celine as well. They don't know everything that's going on. Uh and, and that is how the real world operates, the fog of war and all of that. We don't, everybody, not everybody has all the pieces. Well, and and I like that it, the, because you show a lot of, in both books, you show a lot of kind of slice of life type events that happen. And, and, you know, you show, you know, landing at different spaceports or even, you know, different restaurants or bars or tavernos or whatever. And, and, um, for us and for the characters of the first book that those events were big, they were important, but for everybody else, they weren't. And so it was interesting to see like the events of the first book were maybe world changing for the characters, but nobody else in the universe knows what's happening. Nobody else cares what's, you know, who Jordan is. And it, it, it's, it was interesting to see that those interactions that happen on a base level and I um without coloring them with you know because there's things that happen in our world that you know stuff happens in my neighborhood over I have no idea about and I and and it's it's always nice when you read a book where everything is not like everyone isn't like oh yeah that guy I know that guy or I know what happened there because that's not realistic in my opinion yeah and 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 one of the worst offenses is where everybody knows who this is because he's the hero of this story. Exactly. Uh, no, that that's not. Um, there was one of the Star Trek movies where they foil an assassination, burst in on assassins, and they are applauded. Well, no, we don't know who these any of these guys are, except mm-hmm. you know it's his, our heroes. I liked in Casino Royale that when Bond foils the airplane. Uh, destruction. He is slapped onto the ground and cuffed. Yeah, we cuff everybody till we sort out what's going on. Right. And you know, that's that's the real world. I don't know what's going on, so I'm going to, you know, calm this down, arrest everybody in sight, and we will then figure it out. Yes. So, uh, yeah, the, the characters, the rest of the people in the in the universe do not know who these characters are necessarily. Well, and that leads to some interesting events that happen in the book where he like he is being uh, confused for being Jordan and um, and that, you know, and, and like you said, you meet these other characters from the book and and 
you're like, oh, okay, I, I think I know where this is going. And then it, it turns around and you're like, okay, well, maybe I was wrong. And that forces you to like, look, you're kind of looking at from the shade of understanding who you think the character is, but then you're like, well, he's messing with my emotions here. I'm not sure if this is correct or not. Uh, yeah, but it, it was the idea is to keep the reader guessing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was nice to see that that uh, there was uh, a lot of confusion and, like you say, fog of war that really leads the events, and it forces uh, it forces him to make decisions that may or may not be. Uh, the best for him in that situation. It's good to see characters make mistakes. And I liked that he wasn't as adept as Jordan and that the setting was uh, completely different than just the kind of claustrophobic confines that you had on the Icarus in the first book. Um, and uh, it was just a very uh, interesting new take on the universe. And, and I'm, I'm really excited to see how the, the universe and the, the the story behind everything grows in the in the next books and and you mentioned book four so I assume that that book three is 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 in the works or is is somewhere down the line we can expect the next book to come out I mean this book isn't even out yet so I kind of got you know I'm 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 in the uh, the privileged seats of of reading it so um, yeah. uh, you mentioned book oh, four book, but where book. do you see the series going after this. Uh, book three is at Bain waiting for a decision. I'm halfway through book four. I know what the end of the series will be. Uh, I've got an outline for that. So it's just as many new ideas and you don't want to beat the dead horse, but yeah. if I can continue to come up with interesting stories that will develop not just the universe, but also Gregory and Celine's place in the whole thing. Uh, I will continue to write them because they are a lot of fun to write. I like yeah. the the uh, the setting. I like the characters. Um, I'm continually looking for places to put in, as my father used to say, um, <laughs> and coming up with new ones of those. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I would like to do at least six books in the series so the way the, the way i'm thinking we need to do it perhaps is once the third or second or third book of this series is out or third or fourth that we cast this as the icarus saga and the icarus hunt is the prequel to it oh right uh, since these others will follow the same the same characters of gregory uh gregory and Celine. yeah but that's that's just nomenclature Right. Um, well, uh, Timothy, thank you so much for coming on the, the podcast today and, and talking uh, about the Icarus plot. Um, it is scheduled, it looks like, to come out July 5th. And I think that this interview will air right after that. So I think it'll this interview will be on the air on the 8th of July. So just right after that book releases. Um, but I'm excited to see where the series goes. I was excited to to read it. And thank you very much for, for talking with me this morning. No problem. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad you enjoyed the books. 
And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. It proved far easier to leave the complex grounds than Johnny had expected. From the roof of their wing, they dropped to a darkened drill field used by the regular army recruits in Frere. Crossing it, they arrived at an easily negotiated perimeter wall. Avoiding the simple photobeam alarms at the top, they went over. That's it, Deutsch said cheerfully. Nothing but ten clicks of field and suburb between us and fun. Race you! Even with having to slow down once they hit populated areas, the trip took only half an hour. And Johnny got his first taste of what a real city could be. Afterwards, he wouldn't remember much about that first plunge into mainstream Dominion recreational life. Deutsch took the lead guiding them on a giddy and tortuous path among the shows, night spots, restaurants, and pleasure centers that he'd become familiar with in the weeks between his arrival from an Iberian university and his final enlistment in the Cobras. More people than Johnny had ever seen at once in his life seemed to be crowded into the district. Civilians in oddly cut, luminescent clothing. Other civilians whose focus of ornamentation was wild facial makeup and military personnel of every branch and rank. It was too festive an atmosphere for Johnny to feel uneasy, but by the same token it was too outlandish for him to truly relax and enjoy either. It made for a lousy compromise, and within a couple of hours he had had enough. Excusing himself from Deutsch and Singh, all that were still together of the original six, he worked his way back through the crowds to the soothing darkness surrounding the town. Getting back into the complex was no harder than sneaking out had been, and soon he was sliding back through the window into their dark and deserted room. Leaving the lights off, he quickly prepared for bed. He'd been lying in his bunk for perhaps half an hour, trying to will his overactive mind to sleep, when a noise at the window made him open his eyes. "'Who's there?' he stage-whispered as the figure eased into the room. "'Viljo,' the other murmured tightly. "'You alone?' "'Yes,' Johnny said, swinging his legs out of bed. Something in Viljo's voice was distinctly off-key. "'What's wrong?' "'I thought Mendro and the MPs might be here by now,' Viljo said distractedly, flopping onto his back on his own bunk. "'I'm not sure, but I think I'm in trouble.' "'What?' Johnny bumped his vision enhancers up a notch. In the amplified background light, Viljo's expression was tight, but he didn't seem hurt. What kind of trouble? Oh, I had a little argument with some fridge-eater behind one of the bars. Had to bounce him around a bit. Abruptly, Viljo levered himself off the bunk and headed for the bathroom. Go back to bed, he told Johnny over his shoulder. If the guy makes trouble, we'd both better be innocently asleep when the investigations start. Will he recognize you again? I mean, I don't think he was blind or illiterate, no. I meant, was it light enough to read your name off your fatigues? 
Yeah, it was light enough. If he had time to pay attention. Go to bed, will you? Heart-pounding, Johnny crawled back under his blanket. Bounced him around a bit. What did that mean? Had Viljo hurt the other? Perhaps even badly? He opened his mouth to ask, and then closed it again. Did he really want to know all the details? What are you going to do? he asked instead. Get undressed and go to bed. What did you think? No, I mean about reporting it. The sound of running water stopped and Viljo re-emerged. I'm sure as hell not telling anyone else about this. You think I'm crazy? But the guy could be badly hurt. He got away under his own power. Besides, he's hardly the sort of fridge-eater worth risking your career over. That goes for your career, too. I... what? You know what? You go blabbing about this to Mendro, and you'll have to admit you were out of Freyr tonight, too. He paused, studying Johnny's face. Besides which, it'd be a lousy demonstration of team unity for you to turn me in over something this trivial. Trivial? What was he armed with, a laser cannon? You could have gotten away without fighting. Why'd you stick around? You wouldn't understand. Viljo climbed into his bunk. Look, I didn't really hurt him. And if I overreacted, it's too late to change things now, so let's just forget it, huh? Chances are he won't even report it. But what if he does? If you don't report it first, it'll look like you're trying to cover it up. Yeah, well, I'll play the odds. And since it's my risk, you're invited to stay out of it. Johnny didn't answer. Silence again returned to the room. And after a few minutes, Viljo's breathing slipped into the slow, steady pattern of sleep. The mark of a clear conscience, Johnny's father would have said, but in this case that hardly seemed likely. For Johnny, though, the immediate problem was not Viljo's conscience, but his own. What was the proper thing to do here? If he kept quiet, he was technically an accessory after the fact, and if the civilian's injuries turned out to be severe, that could mean real trouble. On the other hand, Viljo's point about team loyalty was well taken. Johnny remembered by saying something about such things at the orientation meeting. And if Viljo had in fact simply put a bully in his place, forgetting the incident would seem the best course. Point, counterpoint. And with the limited information he had, the two arguments could chase each other around his brain all night. They made a good try at doing just that, keeping him uselessly awake for the next hour and a half. One by one, his other four roommates came in the open window, performed their bedtime preparations, and went to sleep. At least none of them had gotten caught. And with that particular worry out of the way, Johnny was finally able to force the rest of it far enough back in his mind to fall asleep himself. But his dreams were violent, tension-ridden things. And when Reveille put an end to them, he felt worse than if he'd been awake all night. Somehow he managed to dress, grab his pre-packed combat bag and head down to the mess hall with the others without his groggy eyes drawing any special comment. No MPs arrived while they were eating, nor was anyone waiting by the transport as they crowded in with the rest of the trainees. And with each kilometer they flew, Johnny's load eased a little more. Surely the authorities wouldn't have let them leave if there had been any complaints of Cobra misbehavior in town. Apparently, the other participant in Viljo's fight had indeed decided to let the whole matter slide. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. 
praise, thanks, and gratitude for Timothy Zahn for sitting down with us today. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirerod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.